I was told to draw the world, so here it is. Okay. Here's Greece. Here's the Italian boot. Uh, here's the Holy Land. Here's the Red Sea. This is Egypt. This is the Tigris and Euphrates, the Persian Gulf. So there you are. Now you know, back in when that when God set up the Oikumene or the empire that Gabriel was involved with, that empire was all over here. Okay, the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, they were all over here. And then we get a change. For the first time in history, we come in contact with these people. And the Greeks set up an empire under Alexander. But even the Greek empire, there was the king of the north, and there was the king of the south, and they were the ones interacting with us. It's not till Paul that for the first time in Bible history, we go this way. God sent Jonah to the Gentiles, and Jonah said, I don't want to go to, the, to Nineveh. I'll pick which Gentiles I want to go to. I think I'll go to Tarshish, which is way over here. And as soon as Jonah started going to Tarshish, he wound up right back here. Nobody ever goes this way. Nobody ever goes west. All the movement in the Old Testament is out to the east and back again. Abraham from Ur of the Chaldees, going back to Babylon. Coming back to the promised land. It's all this way until we get to the new covenant to Paul. Even the first cycle in Acts, Peter and the apostles, they're in this area here. Then we get Paul and we start going out here. So there's movement in history. And the movement is the new thing. There are all kinds of new things in the New Testament, aren't there? We don't ever notice them because we've got the Bible chopped up into two testaments. There are no two testaments, okay? There's only one Bible. Through composed, it's the Scriptures. See? I'll show you. See this page right here? It used to be in here. I pulled that sucker out because it's just one Bible, okay? If you're 21, you can do the same. <laughs> if you're not, get permission. How many fishermen did, did, were called to be prophets in the Old Testament? Zero. How many times in the Old Testament do you ever see anybody eating fish? Thank you, sir. Never. Okay? How many shepherds or herdsmen were called to be apostles or prophets in the New Testament? None. Where in the New Testament do you see anybody eating sheep or beef? Never. Don't tell me that they did it at Passover because the Bible never says they did. I mean, we're not shown people eating fish. You see, there's a tremendous change in imagery. Most people have never... How many of you have never thought about that before? How many of you are saying, gee whiz, how come I never thought about that before? <laughs> see, how can this be? <laughs> a big change here, you know. We move from the land to the sea. We move from Jew to Gentile in the symbolism of it all. After his resurrection, Jesus asked for a fish. At the five, feeding the 5,000, he feeds them fish. Nobody in the Old Testament ever ate fish. You know, if Elijah had fed 5,000, he'd have fed them lamb. <laughs> That's the way that goes. The Old Testament, everything is on the land. The prophets send letters out to other nations. In the New Testament, the apostles never send letters to other nations. They send letters to cities. Even the letters to the seven churches are to cities. We move from land to city when we go from Old to New Testament. 
the, the promise in the Old Testament was a holy land. The promise in the New Testament is of a new Jerusalem. And everything is taking place in a city in the New Testament. Jesus goes from city to city. He winds up in a city. Paul writes letters to cities. Paul visits cities. The book of Revelation is all about cities. Not much about cities in the Old Testament. It's mainly about lands. The prophets send messages to the Moabites, to the Ammonites, you know, to these larger land groups of people. Big shift. Okay. I don't know why I talked about that, except that I was told to draw a map. You see, and that's... Another thing is this movement... You see, if we super... There are lots of colors here, so I've got to use them all. If we superimpose on this the tabernacle and the temple, the Holy of Holies is here, the holy place is here, and the altar is here. So when you go out from the temple courts, you go to the east. And when you come back to God, you move in a westward direction. But you're never allowed to go into the temple itself. Only the priest can go in there. And only the high priest can go into the Holy of Holies and once a year. So this is a barrier. This is as far west as you can get. But after Jesus dies and this veil is torn down and Jesus comes to the throne, we push right out through the other side and start making journeys back this way. That's why this whole east-west thing shifts. And so... Well, I won't go any further than that, but that's why once the veil is down, once Jesus is in here and we're in the land, in the, in the land of Eden, which we never got to, in the Holy of Holies, then we can move out on this side. That's why these changes take place. That's the meaning that they have. There are things we tend not even to notice, again, because we've got the Bible divided up into two parts. Well, um, Apparently, one thing I said last night was unclear. <laughs> I don't know how that could possibly be. But <laughs> you, know, you know, I try so hard, but... I, I was talking about how back when we came out of Egypt, uh, some of us were circumcised and some of us were uncircumcised, mixed multitude folks. And... The uh, the camp of Israel. I'm going to take the world off now. Well, I'll I'll kind of make it slightly less visible. Let's put it that way. Okay. We were organized as a camp of Israelites around the altar and the uh, tabernacle, and then out here was the mixed multitude. Now this is the same configuration that Daniel, God sets up in the time of Daniel. A holy land with the holy city in the midst and the Oikumene empire around it. <coughs> what happens when we came out of Egypt was for the first year everything was okay and then we sinned and we were condemned to wander in the wilderness for 39 years up to a total of 40. During those 39 years, those of us that were Jews, or Israelites rather, did not practice circumcision. So all of our children grew up, even though they were genetically descended from Abraham or from Abraham's servants and were parts of various tribes, none of them were part of a nation of priests. Their priestly service, which is marked out by circumcision, didn't exist, and they reverted to being Gentiles. And by the time we get to the end of that period, only Joshua and Caleb remain among men who are actually circumcised and part of a nation of priests. And the distinction <clears throat> between Israel and the mixed multitude has disappeared. Everybody is a Gentile. Nobody's circumcised. The covenant with Abraham to have a nation of people who will be priests to the nations, that covenant has, has, has died. <clears throat> There's death. Every story in the Bible is a story of death and resurrection. Every single one. And this is no exception. We have death now, 
And then we cross the Jordan River, which is another baptism. And after we cross the Jordan River, a place of life, everybody's circumcised. Everybody, including all the mixed multitude people who came out of Egypt and their descendants. Now, all the men are circumcised, and then everybody celebrates Passover, and their priesthood is restored. But this is a new Israel that comes out of the death of the old Israel in the wilderness. The tribes still existed as political entities, okay? But the tribes did not exist as servants of God, as, <coughs> as a nation of priests. It's here that they're restored. This 40-year period of time where the distinction between Israelite and mixed multitude is being broken down with a view to a death and resurrection and making a new Israel is the same thing that's happening in the apostolic age. Among other things that are going on, this is one of them. Paul has to break down the barrier between Jew and Gentile and make one new man in Christ, and then there's going to be a great tribulation, and there's going to be a lot of martyrs. The book of Revelation shows us this. Other parts show us this. And then there's going to be a resurrection in AD 70 of a new glorified church. I don't have time to go through the book of Revelation with you, but that's what the book of Revelation is about that the dead and resurrected glorified Jesus is going to have a dead and resurrected glorified bride <coughs> with him in AD 70. Well, we're in 1 Corinthians, which is part of that story. And now, this morning, <coughs> excuse me, Ah, oh, that was good. Yeah, it looks like water, but it's really vodka. And I'm feeling better and better about this lesson. I want you to turn, that's just a joke. I want you to turn to Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 18. And we'll, we'll find out some stuff about the church at Corinth, which leads us, will lead us to a cool observation about the very first verse in 1 Corinthians. Acts chapter 18. Let's read it together and think about it together. After these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. In Athens, Paul had spoken to sheer out-and-out pagan philosophers. And this is... Uh, uh, the Luke ridicules the Athenian philosophers. And really, I think that this is going to play into a little bit into the book of 1 Corinthians itself, where he says that God mocks the wisdom of this world. Because you remember, the Athenian philosophers used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. <laughs> there is nothing new. See, in paganism, everything is just an endless circle, and it's just more of the same. We could spend time talking about that, but it's really true. In, in paganism, history is just one darn thing after another. And it's just repeating the same cycles over and over again. So they're always looking for something new, but there's nothing new to be found. And then Paul comes, and Paul tells them something new, and they scoff and laugh. <laughs> they didn't really want anything new at all. When the new thing really came, they didn't want it. Some they mocked, and some they scoffed, and some replied with reason. Others put it off until a more convenient season, as the, as the carol says. Uh, well, Paul left them, okay, and he goes to Corinth. In Corinth, we have a different situation. We're not dealing with out-and-out pagan Gentiles to hear. He found a certain Jew named Aquila, or Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, the author of Hebrews. No, just kidding. They wish... Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he came to them. So this, this wars, rumors of wars, persecutions, shifting, shaking up of the world that Jesus said was going to happen uh, when, at his ascension, this is part of it. The world is being shaken up around. And Claudius, the philosopher king, uh, does not want the Jews with their strange religion in Rome. And Paul came to them because he was of the same trade. 
he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. You need to remember that who else was a tent maker? Bezalel was a tent maker. Moses got the pattern on the mountain, and then Bezalel made it with the assistance of Aholiab. And then David got the pattern for the temple, and Solomon built the temple with the assistance of Hiram of Naphtali. Jesus gets the pattern of the church, and he sends the Holy Spirit to build the church with the assistance of Paul, the tent maker. So Paul is like Hiram of Naphtali. He's like a holy ab. He is assisting Bezalel, the Holy Spirit, to build the temple that Jesus has been given the vision to do. And that's why this business of tent makers is mentioned here. You see, it's not a coincidence that they were tent makers. We're supposed to remember what a tent maker is. It's somebody who builds a house, and they build a temporary house. Because the church that's being built at this time in history is like a tabernacle. And it's going to be torn down, and then the temple is going to show up. The permanent, solid temple structure will show up after this tabernacle is taken down. Once again, I know this sounds radical to you, but it's not. Don't be afraid of it. The tabernacle and the temple are really the same thing. The tabernacle is just the first and somewhat temporary form of the temple. In, in terms of the typology, what Paul is making is a tabernacle. In the Great Tribulation, that's going to be wrecked. But in AD 70, the New Jerusalem is going to appear, spiritually speaking, which is the solid, hard, permanent form of what Paul is building here. So there are all kinds of things that are applicable to us and relate to us. What was temporary then is permanent now. It's the same stuff. But we don't want to miss out on the fact that Paul knows, and we're going to see in 1 Corinthians, that a, a big judgment is coming on all the things. And he wants to pass that judgment. He wants the fruit of his labors to pass the judgment that's coming. So that those who are righteous and solidly built, righteous means solidly built and faithful, will by faithfulness and faith come through the judgment and be part of the new uh, hard stone temple that's going to be coming uh, when this tabernacle form of the church is replaced and comes to its glorification. So here they are, they're tent makers. And that's significant, okay? It's not just a piece of interesting information here. And that's what they're doing. Uh, the churches that they're building are tents. And uh, then they're going to be replaced with the solid stone of the temple. All right. Verse 4 says, He was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath day, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Are these pagans? No. Pagans don't go to the synagogue. Are they Gentiles in general? No. What does Greek mean? Citizen of the Oikumene. Okay, the land around the land. Regardless of what language you speak, regardless of whether you were born in southern Britain, you know, Julius Caesar has conquered southern Britain by this time. But if you're from there, you're a Greek because you're in the empire. Okay? in the empire that God set up. And there are Jews and God-fearing Greeks, God-fearing Oikumene citizens in this synagogue, and Paul is reasoning with both of them. And you know, just because you're a Gentile God-fearer doesn't mean you're going to be any more open to the gospel than a Jew is. Because, you know, your friends have ridiculed you for years for hanging around with these Jews and observing the Sabbath day, you know, the, the satirist Juvenal in Rome writes a whole satire on the Jews. You should read it sometime. These stupid Jews, they're so lazy. They take every seventh day off, and they have all these other feasts and festivals. They hardly work at all. and They won't eat pork. Talk about stupid. And he goes through and he ridicules all the stupid things about the Jews. Well, if you were a God-fearing Gentile who started hanging around with Jews and going to the synagogue, your neighbors have been mocking you for years. And Paul comes along and says, you don't have to live this way anymore. All your sacrifices that you've given up, doesn't matter. You can eat pork now. Well, when you've sacrificed a lot for something, you're not ready to change and say, well, I didn't really need to sacrifice after all. Nobody wants to hear that. 
what people want to hear is, my sacrifice counts. So, it's not necessarily the case that God-fearing Gentiles were any more interested in the new gospel than Jews. It took a while to persuade them. Verse 5 says, When Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. All right, so he stopped making tents. Silas and Timothy could handle the tent-making trade, and Paul began speaking constantly to everybody around the synagogue, especially to the Jews, that Jesus was the Messiah. Verse 6, Seth. When they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I go to the Gentiles. Why did he shake out his garments? (laughs) More symbolic stuff. Uh, It's as if these people are attached to his garments. They're part of his world. Uh, the, The official robe that the high priest wore in the Old Testament had the names of the tribes of Israel as part of the robe. And symbolically, that's what any official garment is. And Paul is saying, I've been dealing with all you people and you're part of my world, and now I shake you off. Uh, You're no longer part of the world around me. I'm not going to talk to you anymore. That's basically what that means. So verse 7 says, He departed from there and went to the house of a certain man named Titius Justus, or Titus Justus a worshiper of God whose house was next to the synagogue. Two things to notice about here. Titius Justus is a worshiper of God. He's not a convert from paganism. He's a God-fearer. That's what this phrase means. This guy had been in the synagogue right along. He may have been a third or fourth generation believer. He's not circumcised, but he's a God-fearer, a worshiper of God. This is a technical term. In the Psalms we read it, O house of Israel, praise the Lord. O you house of Aaron, praise the Lord. O you who fear God, praise the Lord. That means God-fearers. God-fearers all over the Old Testament. God-fearers all over the New Testament. I can't say that enough times because for some reason Calvinists get it in their heads that the only saved people in the Old Testament were people who were circumcised. Circumcision didn't mean salvation. It meant call to priesthood. Okay, There are lots of uncircumcised saved people in the Old Testament. Yes, sir. Well, Gentiles is a cover term for, you know, everybody that's outside of Jewry. Specifically, though, it's going to be the Greeks because that's where he is. He's in the Oikumene. I, I could also say this, that functionally speaking, the Oikumene Greek population stands in for all the Gentiles in China and South, Af- South Africa and South America. So there's, there's a relationship between the two. So when he says, I go to the Gentiles, that's part of a larger picture going from Jew to Gentile, and then that's going to be manifest in the smaller picture of going from Jew to Greek. Okay? That's, that's the best I can do with all the information here, and I, th- I think that makes, that makes sense. Okay, the second thing is his house is right next to the synagogue, which is important. If next to doesn't mean you got a building here and then you got a, a bunch of green space and some trees and then there's another building over there. Next to means on the other side of the wall. So right, right over here on the other side of this wall is the synagogue. And every Saturday they get together to study. And every Sunday we get together... And they can hear us. Any of them who show up, hang around there in that building on the other side of the wall can hear us. And we're doing a bunch of offensive things. One of the offensive things that we're doing here in the church, because the church is not a synagogue, it's a temple, um, is that we are singing the psalms that were sung in the temple, and we're singing it with the musical instruments that were used in the temple. In the synagogue, they didn't do that. Those musical instruments were only for the temple. We read in Ephesians that we sing and play music from the heart to the Lord when we get together to worship. So there's all this music going out in there, and by doing that, we're claiming that we're a temple. That we're part of a new temple, and that their old temple to which they look and their old synagogue service is passe. Another thing we're doing in here is we're breaking memorial bread, which is something that was only done at the temple. 
And in fact, King Josiah put to death the people who were breaking memorial bread on the high places. And as a good follower of Josiah, Saul of Tarsus decided to put to death these wicked Christians who were breaking memorial bread here, there, and everywhere and claiming to have their own temples. You see, kind of a radical shift in things. So this is all very offensive. And when we get to the book of 1 Corinthians, we read about the strangers who can come in and think you're insane or the whole business of speaking in tongues being assigned to the Jews. You have to remember, the Jews are right here. They're right on the other side of this wall. They hear us speaking in tongues. Uh, they hear us singing with musical instruments. They hear us doing the Lord's Supper, which is a temple ritual. Uh, they're getting the, uh, the offense of the gospel right in their ears. So this is an important fact here. Um, now, let's continue on and look at the drama. In verse 8, it says, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. Interesting piece of information here. When the leader, finally, of the synagogue says, I believe in Jesus, that influences other people to say, you know, I've been thinking about it, but now that you have, I will, do, I will too. Now, we as Americans committed to democracy, unlike the Canadians in our midst, who are committed to socialism. <laughs> who are suffering under socialism, even more than we are. Uh, that was a sorry attempt at humor. Um, you know, we, we don't want to really think this way, but it's just a fact, you know. Leaders lead, and when the leader says, uh, you know, Jesus, that sounds right to me now that I've thought about it for a while, then many others believe and are baptized as well. Verse 9, the Lord said to Paul, night by a vision, don't be afraid, but go on speaking and don't be silent. Oh, that's interesting. Turns out Paul was scared the whole time he was doing this. Paul? Paul was afraid? God has to come to him and say, fear not? That's kind of encouraging. You know, I don't know about you, but... If I went to Corinth, I'd be afraid. And uh, going out and talking to unbelievers, especially those with political power, who can throw you in jail. It's a scary thing. And Paul, just an ordinary guy like you and me, he was afraid. But Jesus reassures him. Verse 10, I am with you. No man will attack you in order to harm you. I have many people in this city. Well, now we learn something here. We learn that there have been threats against Paul. That's why he's afraid. You know, people are becoming Christians and the people who don't like that have said, have they, they've sent anonymous letters to Paul saying, we're going to get you late at night. Be, you just watch out. Be afraid. Be very afraid. We're coming for you, Paul. Okay, so we know that. Jesus has to say nobody's going to attack you, and the only reason Jesus would have to say that is that people have said they're going to attack him. And, of course, in the book of Acts, this moves down toward the events in Jerusalem when they do attack him um, and try to kill him. And he settled there for a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But while Gallio, this is verse 12, was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat. See, this is the kind of attack that uh, they were going to do. Saying, this man persuades men to worship God contrary to the Torah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the Torah said the only place you can break memorial bread is at the altar. And he's got people doing it right out here in this other building here. And the Torah as a whole says the musical instruments are for the temple, and he's got these musical instruments are here. He is breaking the Torah. Now, in the days of Jeremiah, when Jerusalem was destroyed the first time, they were saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. But now they've become real book-centered, and the Jews are saying, Torah, Torah, Torah. <laughs> Hey, I didn't write the Bible. <laughs> so they become Torah fanatics. And uh, they even they even go on suicide missions, you know. There's a bunch of <laughs> there's a bunch of them that take a vow that they're never going to eat any more food until Paul is dead. And <laughs> you always wonder what happens to those guys. Uh, <laughs> at any rate, <clears throat> this history just repeats itself. Verse 14, but when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, Hey, 
If it were a matter of wrong or a vicious crime, O oh Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But there are questions, but these are questions about words and names in your own law. Look after it yourselves. I am unwilling to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. Now, you need to see that everywhere in the book of Acts, every time the Jews try to get the church in trouble, the Romans step in and defend the church. The purpose of the empire, the land around the land, is to protect the true believers. The purpose of those terrible beasts in Daniel is to bear their fangs against the enemies of God. They're guardian beasts. They're like cherubim. And in the book of Acts, the Romans are still being a good beast. They're still defending the church. I mean, they don't know what they're doing necessarily, but in the providence of God, they're being good beasts, they're defending the church, and they're putting down those who attack the church. Now, all that changes in A.D. 64. The book of Revelation predicts that the sea beast is going to go bad and he's going to bring out a great tribulation and massacre of the saints. But that's not happened yet. In Acts, the empire is still doing what the empire is supposed to do, is protecting the church. So he doesn't even listen to them. He doesn't even entertain the charges against Paul. Later on, when Paul is arrested in Jerusalem, the Romans step right in and uh, defend him from the Jews. Then we read, and this is where we want to, we want to hold this in, in our minds, they all took hold, verse 17, they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat, and Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. That is, the Jews took hold of their own synagogue leader, Sosthenes, and began whooping up on him uh, right in front of Gallio, and he couldn't care less. Do you Jews want to fight among yourselves? Go ahead. I don't care. You're crazy anyway. You're lazy Take every seventh day off. So, now, remember this guy Sosthenes. Right now, Sosthenes is still in the synagogue. He's not in the church. And yet he must have become, he must have been becoming kind of sympathetic to Paul. Otherwise, the Jews wouldn't have beat him up. Now, when we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Paul and Sosthenes to the church at Corinth. And we find out. This old Sosthenes saw the light. When he felt the heat, he saw the light. <laughs> and he becomes a Christian and uh, shifts over to the church. So we find, you know, that there's a lot of encouragement here. You know, guy after guy, leader after leader, is shifting over into the new kingdom. Well, verse 18 says, Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren, put out the sea for Syria, and with him were Priscilla and Aquila, and he goes away, all right? So that's the story of what happens in Corinth and how the Corinthian church was set up. So let's move from there. Well, I don't want to do this. I want to take questions for a few seconds. But let me just read to you, in closing, uh, the opening of 1 Corinthians. Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. So you see, here's this guy, Sosthenes, He's all fully into the church and working with Paul. In fact, traveling with Paul. Uh, he's left Corinth and he's traveling with Paul at this point uh, to this church. One thing we have seen is that everything in the book of Acts about the formation of the Corinthian church is it's formed out of the synagogue, formed out of Jews and God-fearers. There's nothing about pagan converts here. There may have been a few pagan converts, raw pagan converts in the church at Corinth, but that's not the primary thing, and that's not what the book of Acts says anything about. Uh, in the city of Athens right before, Paul was dealing exclusively with pagan philosophers. In Corinth, he's dealing exclusively with synagogue people. And so we need to bear that in mind as we read the book of uh, 1 Corinthians. Any questions over anything so far? Points of confusion, first of all. You have a point of confusion, ma'am? Oh. You can pronounce it oikumene, 
or oikumene. If you look it up in an English dictionary, it'll say oikumene. A lot of times, though, New Testament scholars say oikumene because that's the Greek pronunciation, and, you know, we can, <clears throat> we can appear smarter and dominate the audience better by uh, using words that no one knows. Okay. I have a, a procedural question. What time is this session out, 10 or 10.30? 10.30. Oh, this goes to 10.30? Yeah. Oh. I thought it went until 10 o'clock. I thought I was told... Well, what, what, is that, what does that pink piece of paper say? What does that pink piece of paper say? Okay, well, I was lied to. Hey, I can keep going. But why don't we, why don't we take questions now? Because the next thing is to open up 1 Corinthians and... And look at uh, what's there. No, I thought I only had 45 minutes for the whole session this morning. Anybody? Yes, sir. This may be a rabbit trail, but it, it sparked my interest because there's a couple of articles out this month on exclusive psalmetry and that if we're using musical instruments in the service, we're not being faithful to the scriptures and regulatory, you know, the, the arguments that are there. Um, I've always thought which you articulated well, that you see an awful lot of instruments in the Old Testament. I hadn't thought about them only being used at the temple. Is How do the exclusive psalmists deal with that? Uh, they deal with it by being insane. <laughs> uh, I mean that in a clinical sense. Uh, well, maybe not a clinical sense. I mean, there's plenty of evidence in the Bible that they because of their pre prior commitment to no musical instruments, they just have to come up with very strange ways to get around. And it's the kind of reasoning process that if you did it in ordinary life, you'd get locked up for. I mean, I'm serious. And, and all branches of the church have people in it who do stuff like that. Um, there are musical instruments in heaven. We're told that our, our worship on earth should be done on earth as it is in heaven. There are instruments in the temple. We are told that New Testament church is a temple. Uh, we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. The ministers of the church are called angels, and the priests of the Old Testament are dressed as angels. The, the, uh, the tabernacle and the temple are ladders to heaven, and the priests of the Old Testament, dressed in white, ascend and descend that ladder to heaven, taking our sacrifices up to God and bringing messages back. The book of Revelation calls the pastors of the churches Angels, he calls them priests. We're, we're called a temple. We do temple things. We eat food in the presence of God. We break memorial bread. And in, in Ephesians, I'll show you, uh, uh, Ephesians, somewhere in the Bible, somewhere in the last part of the Bible, Ephesians 5, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with spirit. What does the spirit do when you're filled with him? What does the spirit cause? Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing, and then this says making melody with your heart. Literally, it says pasalo, P-S-A-L-L-O. Play a psalter. Pluck an instrument. Play music from your heart to the Lord is what it says. This is a quotation from Psalm 98, which says, Break forth and sing for joy and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre, and the sound of music, with trumpets and sound of the horn. That's being paralleled here. Sing and play music. So how do you get around all this stuff? Well, you come up with a whole bunch of distinctions. You know, well, it was in the temple and it's in heaven, but it's not for us right now because the human voice is superior or something. Actually, it all goes back down to Greek philosophy, which says that the material world is inferior. And that's what lies behind it. And if you scratch underneath Gerardo and these other arguments, 
It always comes down to something inferior about physical matter. The fact of the matter is there is no a cappella singing anywhere in the Bible. Every single time anybody sings, they take up instruments. <laughs> in Revelation 4, the angels are saying their praise to God, and then when the Lamb comes to the throne, they pick up instruments and sing. And uh, you can't find any place in the Bible where they're singing without instruments. I'm sure they did. But singing is always pictured as with the created physical cosmos drawn into the service of praise by the priests of the cosmos. And so as a priest of the cosmos, I take hold of this piece of the cosmos and I draw it into the praise of God with me. Now, so, you know, all humor aside, I'm not saying the people who think this way are, are really crazy, but the arguments are so strained that if you tried to use those kind of arguments anywhere else in life, you wouldn't get anywhere. It's only in this holy area uh, that people can get by with really odd arguments like that. And there are a lot of traditions of the church that hold that, but uh, Luther made a definitive break with it, and Calvin, Calvin argued that way, but in Calvin you've got a real streak of uh, anti-physicality uh, that you have to be aware of. and uh, So I, it, it just, just doesn't work. The picture of worship that God likes in the temple is one in which there's symbols and uh, there are trumpets, there are other instruments, as, uh, wind instruments as well. Flutes are mentioned in the Psalms. Uh, and then there are mass stringed instruments, which makes a lot of noise. But there's always, you can always go online and find somebody who has a church with eight people in it in a denomination with two other churches who's put out a whole lot of articles on stuff like this. <laughs> you know, there's all kinds of stuff online. I mean, if you took the denomination whose essays I think you're talking about and took everybody in that denomination, there would be about as many people as are sitting on the first three rows over here. I, I just, it's not credible. Now that I've offended somebody. Is there another question? I, I just, it's not credible. Now that I've offended somebody. Is there another question? You know, I can just repeat the question. <laughs> In seeing the flow of uh, philosophy of history from the time of the post-Noahic uh, flood, Moving up to the time of the New Testament, moving from a, um, Noah and his sons and flowing through to the Okomini. <laughs> don't want to sound too scholarly, but um, how does it, <laughs> how does it, how is the flow? Because when you get to your distinction between the Old Testament, you have more of a shepherd or herdsman mentality, which we also find in the pre-Noahic. Um, and then you have Amos and some of the minor prophets being the shepherds. Um, at what time does a, a clear distinction between the temple, the people of God, um, the Okamini, what, what time does that um, happen? Is that at the call of the Red Sea, or is that actually even prior to the Red Sea, um, even before the going down into Egypt with Joseph and such. His empire, his giant man, that giant man is uh, is a new temple. The, the, se the sequence of metals there is from the temple. So this is a new house in which God's people will live until the Messiah comes. And then we see the same thing with the four uh, cherubic, em cherubic empire beasts that are uh, revealed in, in chapter 7. That's when that comes into being. Before that time, you had simply Jews and Gentiles, so to speak. Uh, and Jews, well, you have Hebrews, Israelites, Jews, okay? 
So Abram is a Hebrew, and then you have Israelites from Egypt on. They're called Jews after the exile. Um, Those people are marked out from everybody else in the world by circumcision. And uh, that's a sign of their calling to be a nation of priests ministering on behalf of the whole world. So you have concentric circles. Within Israel, you have the Aaronic priests who minister to Israel and assist Israel in worshiping at the temple. And the worship that Israel as a nation does at the temple is on behalf of the whole world, the 70 nations of the world. And once a year, the nation of Israel brings 70 bulls at the Feast of Tabernacles to cover the sins of the whole world. So you've got a nation of priests, you've got Aaronic priests in the middle, and you've got all the people, God-fearers and pagans, both, out in the Gentile world. Before the institution of circumcision, and starting with Cain and Abel, there was still a line of priestly people in the world, but they weren't marked out by circumcision. So uh, Abel, with his, with his sheep, is a priest, and Cain should have recognized Abel as the priest. Cain is the king, and that was fine, but Cain brings his own sacrifice uh, to the Lord instead of allowing Abel to be the priest and going through Abel, allowing Abel's lamb to be for him as well. And you have to understand that these guys were about 125 and 127 years old at this point. This wasn't a private sacrifice. They had all their people with them. You know, there's 200 people over here with Cain, and there's 200 people over here with Abel, and this is a big public humiliation that takes place for Cain. Uh, This is corporate worship. But Cain should have recognized that Abel, the word Abel means Hebel. I'm going to back up here. You ask a question that is kind of fun to answer, so I'm going to give you a full answer. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. That's the first, that's the first thing God does, okay? And then in the second story in the Bible begins, these are the offspring of the heaven and the earth. And the offspring of the heaven and the earth, or the generations of the heaven and the earth, is human beings who are made of dirt plus the Holy Spirit, okay? Heaven and earth. Then in chapter 4, it says, Cain and Abel gave birth to two sons. One son is Cain, that means smith, somebody who works in the earth, a miner. And then Habel, which means Mr. Cloud. So human beings in the image of God give birth to a heaven and an earth. And Abel is a word that means heaven, heavenly Mr. Cloud. Cain is a man as a name that means earth, solid ground. Okay, that's what man makes because he's the image of God. It's very carefully put out here. But that indicates to us that Habel or Abel would be the priestly son, the one who connects us up to God. And he's the one with sheep, and he's the one that Cain should have recognized. So right away, and then when he dies, then at 130 years of age, the next son who is born to Adam and Eve, and they probably had had 30 other sons in between, but the next son named Seth is the replacement for Abel. He becomes the leader of the, of the priestly line. They're the ones who, who maintain the worship of God in the world until the flood. After the flood, we have the line of Seth. And Seth comes down to Eber, and there, Eber has two sons. The Joktanite Eberites, Hebrews, fall at the Tower of Babel. And the Pelagite descendants of, of Eber come down to Abraham. So we have a priestly line ministering to others. They're not marked by circumcision, but they're marked by a blood genealogy. With Abraham, it changes. It's no longer a blood genealogy. The sign is circumcision. So Abraham circumcises all the men in his household. He had 318 fighting men. He probably had about 5,000 people in his sheikdom. He was an important man. That's why when he went down to Egypt, Pharaoh entertained him and stole his wife and all that because, I mean, this was a big guy when he came down to Egypt. It wasn't just him and Sarah coming down there and saying, help us out, Pharaoh. There's 5,000 people with him or so. So all those men are circumcised. It's no longer a bloodline. It's a line marked by covenant cutting of blood. And then when we get to the New Testament now, everybody's a priest. See, baptism makes everybody a priest. We no longer have a distinction between priestly and non-priestly people. But that's sort of the history of the Jew-Gentile thing. It's there all the way along, ever since Abel.
there were the special people and there were the circumcised people, but all those times it was just Jew and Gentile until you get to Daniel. And then you have Jews, Bartholomew, and Gentiles. So you, you see a, uh, a radical well um, as I say circumcision was no longer a, genealog- a strictly genealogical idea because anybody who wanted to could be circumcised so Caleb the Kenanite, Kenizzite who's a descendant of Esau uh, has obviously become circumcised and, and risen to the leadership of the tribe of Judah uh, so when you have Joshua and Caleb, you have Jacob and Esau standing shoulder to shoulder, a new Jacob and Esau, you know. Uh, there are motifs there that you've hit on quite accurately. Uh, and yeah, in a sense, in a sense, Caleb is kind of like the mixed multitude and Joshua is like the Jews. They're the two who survive the entire wilderness and come in and, so to speak, extend this circumcision to make a new Israel out of it. So, yeah. Well, the Lord tells Joshua to do it, and, and uh, no, he's acting as a prophet to tell the people to be circumcised. The circumcision is not done by a priest. Circumcision is done by a parent or anybody else. Uh, it's, not, it's not something that's done by priests. I mean, you could have a priest do it, but it's not required. Huh? I, I have a question about fish. Yeah? Um, there's only a couple of places I think in the Old Testament that fish are mentioned in terms of uh, fishermen, um, and uh, and it made me think of the flood where God says He's going to destroy everything in which is the breath of life on the earth, which would seem like to indicate that the fish survived. I don't know if you didn't answer answer that question. Then in Jeremiah 16, there there are fishermen that fish for and hunt for God's people to bring them to judgment, and then you got Ezekiel, I think it's 43, where there's fishermen that come. 47. It, yeah, at 47. And it seems like that's more of a, of a positive or blessing. Uh, so I wonder if you could speak to, to that. Well, um, set aside the flood for a second. All those instances and the book of Jonah, you see that the fishermen and the people on the sea are Gentiles. Okay, so in Jeremiah... You know, the fishermen who are coming to snare Israel are, you know, Gentile nations. And briefly, Israel is considered to be fish at that point. They seldom are. Uh, in, uh, in Ezekiel 47, the waters flow out from the temple to the Dead Sea, which is the boundary of the Holy Land. Now, I don't have my, don't have my map still up here. But, here you have okay the original land that they conquered looked like this the land that God gave to Solomon was much bigger the holy land after the exile is much smaller and it just consists of Galilee, Samaria and Judea and so this Dead Sea is the boundary of it, okay? It's a much smaller land after the exile. The river, the holy, sanctifying, life-giving waters flow out of the temples of the Dead Sea and make it come alive again, and then there are these big fish. Those represent Gentile nations who are being caught by Israelites, and Jesus picks straight up on that. Uh, it says, I hope this is of interest to you. Um, Ezekiel 47. Verse 10. It says, It will come about, fishermen will stand beside the Dead Sea. From Engedi to Enagliam, there will be a place for the spreading of nets. Well, En means spring. So, En, Gedi, En, Eglayim. If you take the numerical value of Gedi, uh, Gimel, Daleth, and then Glyam, Eglayim, 
if you take the numerical value of those letters in Hebrew, they come up to 153, which is the number of big fish that Jesus got in John 21. So there are all these connections with getting Gentiles, you see. Uh, as far as the flood is concerned, yeah, they have, uh, uh, Noah apparently doesn't have to take fish in with him at the flood, which raises all kinds of questions. You know, saltwater fish can't live in fresh water, and the reverse is also true. So if you have a giant washing flood, <laughs> how do the fish make it through? And I don't know. Angels protect him. Angels rearranged the world during the flood. I mean, we don't have to have a scientific explanation because it's after the flood that God says from now on the natural laws will not be changed. Uh, seed time and harvest, summer and winter will proceed, and you can count on it. Well, that indicates that those processes were suspended during the flood year, which was a year of recreation. So, But that, that is an interesting point that it's land animals that are saved on the on the ark, and the fish just kind of continue on. Um, and, of course, no fish are ever put on the altar. It's all Israel ministry on behalf of the world through land animals. So there are a lot of interesting things there. It's a good question. I don't know all the... I don't know how to unpack everything there, but... <laughs> Not, notwithstanding the validity of your argument uh, defending the use of musical instruments in worship, but you said that there's no example in the Bible of them singing without them. I'm wondering if you could explain, you know, when Paul and Silas are in the Philippian jail, is there something in the Greek that implies Paul had a harmonica? No, no, no. I should have. I should have. I should have rephrased. Uh, let me rephrase that. There's no text in the Bible that says they were singing without instruments. Okay. So in, in Numbers, when you have the song to the well, uh, I mean, they dig a well and they all start singing. There may not have been any instruments there either, but we're never told of any situation where they were singing without instruments. Uh, yeah, you're, prob- you're right. They probably didn't have anything in the, uh, in the jail. But then they might have. That's right. All right, how many of you want to have a, to go away now, and how many of you want to go a little bit longer? <laughs> All right, you asked for it. I knew if I asked that question, nobody would have the guts to say, I want to leave. Well, they were the ones who were clamoring for more. 1 Corinthians, let's, let's look at the first three verses briefly. We'll have a briefing on them. Uh, Paul called as an apostle of Jesus, of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church that is in Corinth, to those who have been sanctified, that is to say, who have been made saints, who have been made holy in Christ Jesus. Now we had Jesus Christ, now we have Christ Jesus. Saints by calling, or rather, uh, called to the sanctuary. With all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, theirs and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, first of all, Paul and Sosthenes. Paul's letters usually start this way, Paul and somebody else. That's because we need a testimony of two witnesses. Under the law, things are confirmed at a testimony of two or three witnesses. So Paul routinely says Paul and one or another person to give this second testimony. But in in terms of the book of 1 Corinthians, there's another reason as well. Paul and Sosthenes, who originally had been at odds with one another, obviously, uh, Sosthenes had been the leader of the synagogue at a time when Paul had been there for 18 months leading the church. Now they're standing shoulder to shoulder. They're in unity. And right away, Paul is going to have to address that the fact that the Corinthian church is not functioning that way. Right down in verse 12, he says, Each of you is saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of the Messiah. Okay, so... 
Right away, Paul and Sosthenes is a way of introducing the subject of brethren dwelling together in unity, to which he will return at the end of the book where he starts talking about Stephanus and Timothy and other people um, that are with him. They all get along together, um, and these guys aren't. So, I mean, they're not standing together. Uh, but Paul and Sosthenes are, and that introduces this theme. And we'll come back to that theme of divisions uh, next time. He says that in verse 2, they have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. That is, they have been made holy. What does that mean? What is a saint? They've been made saints. A saint is somebody who has access to the sanctuary. Okay? They have access to the Holy of Holies. If you have access to the Holy of Holies, if you can go into the Holy of Holies right where Jesus is, right where God the Father is, you're a saint. Okay? That's the biblical meaning. It doesn't mean you're set apart. That's not a good way of rendering the word saint or even holy. The word holy means having integrity. And being a saint in this context, having integrity in Jesus, and specifically having access to the Holy of Holies, access to the sanctuary. Only the priests could do that in the Old Testament because they were the ones sanctified by being baptized. Water was sprinkled upon them, and that's what made them priests. Water was not sprinkled on the ordinary Israelite, and he was not a priest. He did not have the right to go inside the holy place. Now... Everybody's sprinkled. Everybody's anointed. Everybody has a right to go into the holy place. That's what makes you a saint. On Sunday morning, when the minister says, let us draw near, you get to draw near before people didn't get to draw near. Okay? So that's calling saints. Okay? Saints, those who were called together into the holy convocation who were gathered for worship. 1 Corinthians is going to be about what happens when you're gathered for worship. So he starts off here. You have been made saints in Christ Jesus, and you are called together as, as holy ones, called together for worship in a holy convocation, as it says in Leviticus chapter 23. That's the holy assembly of which you're a part. And what do you do when you're there? With all who in every place call on the name of the Lord. So you're called together into the holy assembly because you're holy people. And when you're called together, you call on the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, that's not what we originally called on. We go by, I told you, all this stuff is from the early chapters of Genesis. And this is another example. In Genesis 4, verse 26, the last verse to Seth also was born a son. He called his name Enosh, which means dependent man. Then they began to call on the name Yahweh. They began to call. They began to have public worship assemblies calling on the name Yahweh, That using that name in worship. Now, we don't use the name Yahweh at the height of our worship. If we sing a song from the Old Testament... It's perfectly fine to do so, and I think we should. That's what's there. But we gather in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray in Jesus' name. That's the memorial name that we now use. The name that we, you know, <clears throat> almost done. If you're in this room with a whole bunch of other people, and you hear your name, you look around. You hear your name, it's a hubbub of all the sound in here, and then somebody says your name, you hear it. It's amazing. It just kind of goes through every, all the noise. Takashi! And you hear it. Okay? You hear that. Okay? Nobody else hears it, because they're all talking, but you hear it, because it's your name. Okay? In the Old Testament, when people prayed, when they said Yahweh, God said, oh, I hear it. In the New Testament, when we say Jesus, God says, oh, I hear it. Among all the noise in the world, that's the memorial name. It's the name that, that he picks up on, the name by which we pray. So we call on Jesus in worship. 
We're going to be gathered for worship. This book is going to be about what it means for all of us to be gathered together in unity for worshiping God through the name Jesus Christ, which is the new name. And there are two things here, and we're almost done. He says, an apostle of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Anointed One. That's When he says that, he means the person of Jesus. Jesus, the individual man who is now sitting at the right hand of God. Okay, An apostle of this person, Jesus Christ, to the church of God that's in Corinth, sanctified in Christ Jesus. When he says that, he means Jesus as the representative of the whole assembly. He puts the word anointed first. We have been set apart by being anointed, and that connects us to Jesus. When were you anointed? When you were baptized. Okay? Not when you came to personal faith. That's all fine. You need to have that. You're not going to get to heaven without it. But... The actual anointing of Jesus was when he was baptized, and your anointing is when you were baptized. That puts you into the body of Christ. When you see Christ all by itself in the letters, it means the body of Christ, the church, with Jesus' head. When you see Jesus Christ, it means him as an individual. When we see something like Christ Jesus We are anointed, made holy by being baptized into the body of Christ and connected to Jesus. That's why the words are in this order. And then we call on the name, the memorial name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, not just as a person, but as king who is at the right hand of the Father. When we call on that name, God hears us. So, right away, we have all this theology in how these things are put together, and it's all liturgical. It's how we worship. Okay? We come together as a baptized community who have been made holy and anointed, uh, given sanctuary access and made part of the body of Christ, and there we worship the Lord Jesus Christ uh, and use his name in worship, and the Father likes to hear us use his name. The Father says, ah, they're using my son's name. Let's see what they want. Let's pray. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.